Here in Orlando, Florida, O-Town Compost is leading the composting revolution, recycling organic waste into a nutrient-rich resource. Join Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, as we hear from the nation's leading voices behind the grassroots community composting movement. Welcome to the Community Composting Podcast. If you enjoy the Community Composting Podcast and want to support future episodes, please follow the link in the episode show notes to give a small monthly reoccurring donation, even if it's $5 to $10 a month. We'll continue to come out with killer content to keep the grassroots movement rolling. Hi, welcome to episode number 20 of the Community Composting Podcast. Today I have Pierce and Nate with Dirt Huggers Compost based out of Eastern Oregon, right on the border of Washington and the Dalles, Oregon. And uh, I had the privilege when I was back home in Portland, Oregon, visiting my folks in a couple months ago, I had the privilege of going out to their site and getting a tour, um, seeing like what a real commercial composting facility looks like that's doing you know hundreds if not a thousand tons processing each week um you know it, it it's been my dream uh to kind of understand how you do this waste diversion on a a high volume and uh nate and pierce you guys were nice enough to let me come tour that so, you know, I, I just wanted to ask about your, your origin story, like how were you guys founded and how did you get to where you are now processing? You guys are processing food waste from mul multiple cities around the area, including the city of Portland, Hood River, um, Vancouver, I believe you said. And then that's in addition to all the agricultural waste and, you know, yard debris that you receive on a regular basis. But how did you get from the beginning to where you are now? Well, it all began with pretty much hating our jobs. Um, so my partner and I, Tyler, um, worked in the aerospace industry and we worked for a company that was sort of 24 people and it sold and turned to 24,000 people. And the culture and everything really shifted. And we wanted to be able to do something uh, that was a little more local and a little more environmentally driven. And so while we were working there, we kind of researched a few different opportunities. We looked into like smart grid stuff. Um, and we, we started going to a bunch of different trade shows. Along the way, we went to a US Composting Council trade show and pretty much immediately fell in love with the industry and just how open everybody was and how willing to share people were. It was a very stark contrast to the aerospace industry where no one shared anything and everything was top secret and clearance and all this other stuff. So we, we loved the industry, we liked the people and we traveled around to 10 different facilities in four different states to get an idea of what you know the industry looked like and what facilities were like and could we handle the smell and stuff like that. Um, after that, we we thought this could be a good idea. A local um, recycling organization called Tri-Counties Recycling commissioned a study for $50,000 to look into all the different types of organics in our region. And they made a very detailed, it was really detailed market analysis that had all of the different types of materials. So we have forestry biomass, 
which is 210,000 tons a year, but actually is not really very accessible. We have orchard waste, we have food waste, we have brewery waste. So we use that data to build a mini business model. And in parallel, Tyler, my partner, went to a U.S. Composting Council um, training course for a week down in California. And he also, that just kind of furthered his passion for composting. And when he came back from that, we, we built our first piles. And so we had four piles in the back of Tyler's yard where we tested different recipes and tried to figure out, you know, can we even make compost? Uh, and do we know how to do this? So we used building the piles out of, uh, we got wood chips from a local arborist. Um, we took food scraps from our kitchens. Um, we, I mean, we were just totally monkeying around and we had a pitchfork and we would go and turn it and water it with this garden hose. And it was just trying to figure out how to do it. Um, so from that, we, we wrote four different grants and got some grant opportunities. And then we went to our local waste hauler and they were collecting brush at the time. And they said they were willing to divert it to us if we opened up, you know, some processing capacity. So we found a, a burned down lumber mill that we rented for 500 bucks a month. And we bought a little truck and our neighbor happened to be a heavy construction company. And we walked over there one day and he handed us a ring of keys and showed us how to run a front loader and said, okay, you can, you know, rent these by the hour and just tell us how many hours you use it. And he said, you know, after six or eight hours, you'll figure out how to run these things. Oh. <laughs> and Tyler backed into a dumpster his first day, but uh, <laughs> we, I mean, we just didn't know what we were doing, but gave it a run and had that brush. And I remember the first load that we got from the garbage company and I'm a pretty talkative person. And we, Tyler and I had lunch together afterwards. And he's like, you didn't say a word all through lunch. I was just in shock. I was scared. I was terrified. Um, we just didn't know what to do or how to do it, but that was 11 years ago. Um, that was at our first facility in the Dallas. And we, you know, we'd written four grants to get that going, borrowed a bunch of money. We put a little bit of money in ourselves and kind of just have built it over time from then. Wow, that's uh, incredible, and I'm glad you persisted, even though it was terrifying. Um, you know, do you guys track your diversion numbers? Um, you know, how much, how much material you have inbound, and then how much compost you sell on the back end? And could you give me those numbers? Just curious. We do, we do track that. Um, we're we're big on metrics. Um, we're tracking every, every load that comes in in real time gets entered in to our database essentially. So we're able to report in real time, how many tons we've gotten in to the hour. Um, and then similarly on the back end, when we're sending out loads, we kind of know when we're sending out compost, we know what's coming up over the next couple days in the next week. Um, and then we know in real time how many yards we've sent out um, today to the minute as well. Um, so numbers, like for example, yesterday we sent out 264 yards of compost. Um, I could look up real quickly how many tons do you happen to know, Pierce, we received yesterday? Probably about 250 tons, mm -hmm. um, which is what we get pretty much per day. Um, 
you know, last year we processed about 50,000 tons of material and we sold about 35,000 yards of compost. Um, and the biggest thing for us, which Nate, this is kind of Nate's world, but we almost sold out of compost this year. And to us, that's the true driver of the whole system working and being successful. So, you know, we could take in as much material as we want, but if we can't sell that product and we, we don't get that back into the soil, we don't get that back, you know, return that organic matter, then really the whole system doesn't work. So to us, that is the key. And we don't really want to grow what we take until we know that we have um, markets and farmers and gardeners and people who want that product in the, on the back end. That's like very interesting because here in Orange County, Florida, I've spent considerable time convincing the solid waste director who manages the county compost site that there is value in the compost. So, you know, that's great that you guys have those end markets. And, you know, I think over time, hopefully the perception of the value of compost grows as topsoil becomes more scarce. Um, but, you know, have you guys ever looked into a like collection business? Because I know a lot of composters, they don't look at their end product as valuable. They support their operation with the money they make on the front end of collection or tipping fees, they don't really maybe look at the back end as where the they can derive a lot of value. And is that what you guys, that doesn't sound like what you guys are experiencing. Yeah. So I guess two questions in there. One, you know, how we looked at collections, we, we actually started in collections. So we, um, when we first got going, we knew that food scraps was a huge potential. And so we went to our local waste hauler and we asked, Hey, will you collect food scraps? And they said, no. Uh, and so we, that truck we bought, we went to the cities where we live and got a special franchise to go pick up food waste. And so we had this like F three fifty truck and I'm five foot six. And so is my partner, we're both short and the bed was pretty high. And I remember one of the offices we picked up from was just putting coffee grounds in and they had um, one week they had 150 pounds of coffee and I was doing the route by myself and I called Tyler. I was like, you got to come down here. I can't lift this can up into the thing. And we just weren't very good at picking up food scraps. And we just, you know, we didn't have the trucks, we didn't have the system and it was painful and wasn't really working. So we actually, after two months and, and getting a route going, we went back to um, the local waste hall and we said, Hey, we have 35 customers. You know, will you take this route back over? And they said, yeah, absolutely. Now we will. So we, you know, we did that. And I think that was, a, that was very early on. And that's, it was sort of an inflection point in our business. We're like, okay, are we going to be haulers? Are we going to be processors? You know, what's our role in this world? And in, in the beginning, we were just buckshotting. We were even selling compostable products at that time. Um, and we just decided we, we should focus on one thing and try to do that, you know, as well as we can. And so we decided to focus on processing and making a good product. And really out of that, you know, since we, we weren't a hauler and we, we aren't owned by a garbage company, we thought, you know, the product is the one thing we can control. And so by making the highest end product and really focusing on that, that we thought that would see us through in the long run. So you know, since we didn't have a lot of control over what was coming in or who was bringing it, we thought, well, let's just focus on a good product. And then that will drive, you know, our business 
down the line. And that, that's been our focus. And, and, you know, our spread of revenue from a tip P versus product is skewed very heavily towards product size versus, you know, more traditional composters. And let me ask Nate about your products uh, that you sell. You know, I look at Cedar Grove outside of Seattle as maybe the, I mean, I think it's the largest in the country, uh, a composting site. And they have like a whole matrix of blends and different products that they sell. You know, a lot of us community composters don't realize uh, what kind of products you can make and how to make them and, you know, who to sell them to, like, who are the, the buyers for these different products? So if you could just talk about that. Yeah. Um, our product line is really driven by what our, our customers demand. Um, we're really lucky in that where we're located, we are in um, a very heavy agriculture area uh, in which um, fruit trees are being grown versus like commodity crops. So um, we do have like a baseline market um, of just compost application in the fruit, um, cherry and pear orchards in our region, um, as well as there is a thriving like small farm community, CSA based agriculture. They also drive our product line. Um, and then just the backyard gardener and landscape landscapers both in the Columbia River Gorge region as well as um, in the Portland metro area where we service a number of retail yards. And um, I know you have a ton of wineries, vineyards out yeah, there. Too. Yeah, very, very similar to working with the orchards. Um, the, the grape, the, the vineyard industry is growing um, both in the Columbia River Gorge as well as on the other side of the Cascade Mountains in the Willamette Valley where we do all also service customers out there. Um, our primary product, of course, is our, our compost, um, but we also do make value-added products such as soil blends. Um, we have a kind of a, a tiered system, like introdu introductory level uh, price point products, and then we make pretty Gucci soil blends as well. Um, a lot of that's just driven by uh, what the customers are looking for. Um, for a while, we were doing um, a lot more like custom blends, um, but we've kind of, and we're still doing that, but we've kind of dialed in some uh, products that meet the price points we were seeing, as well as the uses we were seeing. And that really saves, saves a lot of time on our end in terms of like quoting projects in, instead of doing individual project quotes for specific blends to each customer. We're, we're able to offer our tiered, we have a product called a Sky Puncher, which is our, our highest end um, potting mix. Um, we have a, and we have a more introductory potting mix that we call our baseline blend, and then just a regular in the middle propagation mix. And for these potting mixes, you're adding like what nutrients and minerals to, you know, get blend them with? Yeah, um, so yeah, we're using our compost we're, we're doing a, like a rock element such as a pumice or perlite. And then we've been experimenting with different uh, fluffy components. I mean, there's the whole debate out there um, over the cocoa core versus peat moss or trying to find some other alternative. I know in the Southeast, for example, a lot of people are using um, a pine 
pine bark input. I believe I heard that spoken about on one of your other podcasts, actually. Um, but then as far as like the amendments go, um, a lot of it is we're using all like OMRI listed inputs, um, blood meal, bone meal, various rock powder inputs. Um, I believe the Sky Puncher has 12, 12 amendments. Wow. Um, so that's definitely a more, more intensive mix. Uh, whereas our, our potty mix has just a light blood meal, kelp meal, um, and a rock phosphate in it in addition to the compost. Where do you guys source these additional amendments from? And um, have you ever explored vermicompost? Um, we, yeah, I mean, we just go to the various vendors for, for the amendments, just wholesalers try to get the best price we can. Um, I mean, again, they're for some of the orchard uh, materials or, or products we're making, there are a lot of orchard suppliers right here in the Columbia River Gorge that we can, can work with. Um, vermicompost, uh, I know there's been talk about it. Um, we've sourced uh, worm castings before for, for mixes, more custom blend mixes, um, but we haven't really taken a go at, at castings. Um, I think it's just kind of a, a different ball game than what we're doing out here. Um, it's a pretty harsh environment where our site site is located um, and just doing the compost as we are without having to take care of uh, vulnerable worms that require moist conditions. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, I know, you know, typical blends, uh, some are like more carbon heavy soil amendments versus more nitrogen heavy, which maybe is like more like a, a food waste compost or uh, some other manure compost. Um, but that, yeah, that's really interesting. And, uh, you know, on episode number 11, I interviewed Daniel with Rust Bell Riders and he said he had just uh, had a conversation, I think, with Pierce. I was just curious, like, what do two you know, leaders in the composting industry talk about, um, you know, because they're heavily involved in the processing side. The Rust Belt writers are, you know, great at collection and they're killing it right now in Cleveland, Ohio, but they also have their, their composting down to a soil science. So I would love to just be a fly on the wall for that conversation. No, that, I mean, those guys are definitely inspirational. Um, and I love what they're doing and, and what their soil brand. Um, I mean, I, I think, you know, back to what I said earlier, it's what I love about the industry is, is when you talk to people, there's a lot of shared pain. Um, so I think conversations center around that a lot of times, you know, we're all trying in one way or another to do the same thing. We're trying to take these really challenging materials and keep them out of landfill and then turn them into something amazing. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. And there's a lot of different ways to screw it up. And, you know, we've all made a lot of mistakes and, and unfortunately they end up being painful mistakes. And so, you know, one of the things I love, you know, say talking to rest riders or other guys is just learning from those experiences and sharing them and kind of being able to laugh about it. Um, and then, you know, draw inspiration from each other. So, you know, I think 
everybody's kind of doing their own thing in a little bit of their own way. And those guys definitely have their own style and their own stuff. And it's pretty cool and it's definitely distinctive. And so, you know, I think just drawing from each other, you know, staying true to what we're each trying to do, but kind of gain inspiration and gain stories and experience. It's, it's pretty sweet. And I, you know, I think our industry is unique that way that we can share that and not really compete with each other or eat into each other, but just really openly and honestly share and learn from each other. So as you start to take on more food scraps, you realize very quickly that you need a better composting system to process the material. This is why I highly recommend the aerated static pile micro bin designed and made easy by O2 Compost. In 60 days, I have finished compost without putting in the labor of turning the pile. The piles heat up to over 140 degrees, killing pathogens, weed seeds, and fly larvae, making the end product safe to use in the garden. With 32 plus years of experience in the compost industry, Peter Moon, owner of O2 Compost, is a leading expert in the field of ASP composting. I encourage you to set up a free half an hour consultation with Peter Moon by going to his website, www.o2compost.com. That's the letter O, the number two, compost.com. If you mentioned that you heard about O2 Compost on this podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount on the purchase of the Microbin Compost Training Program. And you guys, um, you know, you're in Oregon, Washington, where there is, you know, composting has been around for a decade or more. You know, the most of the regulation uh, by the state and by, you know, local municipalities is uh, mandating food waste diversion. So even the large trash haulers are, you know, have their, their trucks for composting and they do collection as well as there's other composting facilities. Like when I was in Portland a couple of years ago, I visited the Recology facility out um, past Hillsboro. I forget the name of it, but um, you know, where do you guys risk, like you are in Eastern Oregon, where you think about it, you're very close to the Arlington landfill. And that is one of the largest landfills in the country, it's gotta be. I mean, I, I heard stories that they have three trail, like transfer trailer tippers going out at a time for like sun up to sun down, which is really depressing if you think about how much waste that is. But, um, you know, do you, does that help your facility re, uh, receive more inbound loads of organic waste? And what is your relationship with like waste management who manages that facility? Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, it, it, it's, yeah, we're situated Arlington landfill and Roosevelt landfill are two of the largest ones and they're, they're very near us. So I don't know what the impact of that is. Um, yeah. If there is any, I mean, uh, you know, here in Orange County, I'm really pushing to site uh, a large composting site on the face of the landfill where they're already processing residential yard debris and they're composting it in windrows. And if we were just to get it re-permitted to handle food waste, it would make a lot of sense. And, you know, trucks are already headed there. They're, you know, it's not too far out of the way. I was just wondering maybe they're if there is any um, 
effects, residual effects from being near the landfill? I, I mean, I think one of the biggest things is we're we're actually closer to the cities than the landfills are. So it, it actually puts kind of another feather in the cap of composting versus landfilling. So Arlington is still, I forget, maybe 45 minutes past us. And so it's just another reason and, and an economic driver to be able to compost because we've got that shorter haul um, yeah. for the material to come here versus going out there. You know, the other one is is Arlington specifically, uh, I don't believe it has methane capture. So again, you know, another feather in the cap of composting where we're, we're avoiding that methane emissions and, and composting aerobically. And ironically, we had uh, some Portland State University students came out and did a methane study at our facility. And EPA has like a sort of a baseline metric built into the worm tool, which is a you know carbon calculator. And they said that our methane emissions were even lower than anything that was in the EPA tool. So I think by, you know, having like a heavy aerobic facility like ours, um, where we're keeping that oxygen above 15% at all times, it, you know, it's, it's driving that even that wedge even further. So it's like, okay, if we're going to, you know, the Arlington landfill, straight methane, and if you're going to dirt hugger, you know, zero. So um, that's a big thing. The, the ironic thing is, you know, like you said, waste management does run that landfill and they are one of our customers. So, you know, we deal with a lot of different haulers. And I mean, I think that's where they're sort of at this nexus of, of, you know, different worlds where they're picking up all these materials and they're sending them different locations. And, you know, our biggest thing is how do we, how do we shift that balance to where the organics are staying out of landfill, but they're also being presented in a way that's easy to compost. So, you know, we, we've seen from recycling, um, what's happened there with contamination. We definitely see it with some of our haulers on the compost side. And so, you know, having that relationship, having that education, having that feedback loop with the hauler is super important to creating quality feedstocks that we can turn into quality end products. Yeah, that's my next question about the site and the layout, you know, about the whole process from inception. But Nate, I remember when I was on the tour of Dirt Hugger facility, you mentioned that you guys low, you backhaul trucks coming from the land fill with uh, finished compost to bring it into cities like Portland, you know, for, for, sa for sale. So I think that's really cool. And, um, you know, that's another feather in the cap, as you say. So, but let me ask real quick, um, if you could uh, explain, um, you know, like a truck inbound comes across, uh, comes into the facility and what follow that material from there all the way until it becomes uh, finished compost, black gold, and goes back to, uh, you know, the local store in Portland where uh, it's for spring planting season, someone might purchase it for their garden. Um, yeah, so like you mentioned, um, we, are, we are getting trucks here that are bringing material and then we're trying to fill them when they leave as well. That's, that's a win. Cause we're getting, we're, we're using that truck on both ends and it's really, it's all about the hauling. So that's just commenting on the last question. That's one of the benefits of kind of being near uh, an area like the landfills where trucks are being used. Um, but we definitely, uh, we definitely try to, um, you fill trucks, empty trucks when they're coming, coming to our site. Um, but yeah, so material comes on our site. 
Um, we, we stockpile it uh, in a pre-processing area. Um, we have a number of uh, uh, pre-processed piles that we try to use a first in, first out sort of system. Um, all of that material that comes in goes through a pick line in which we have uh, people actually out on a, a sorting line picking out any unwanted material um, that, uh, that could be considered contamination. Um, and is anything you want to add, Pierce, on that? Yeah, I mean, and we'll walk through the process, but, you know, there's a lot of steps we do that... Um, you know, our facility is not the least expensive one to run and there's a lot of extra steps and a lot of extra handling, but to us, that really drives the quality bit. Um, so, you know, like the, the pre-processing line that we have is, is pretty extensive and expensive to run. Um, but for us and people, I even gave a tour to somebody this week and they were like, you know, why don't you just deal with all the contamination on the back end? And we're like, we want to get it day one. We want to get it on the front end. And so, you know, the way our whole site is laid out is not the cheapest or the most efficient, but it, you know, it's really like quality driven. Yeah. As well. Pre-processing area, you guys had like a conveyor belt and like, uh, you know, a handful of people in there with gloves actually pulling stuff out, which I mean, probably really adds to the, the quality, but it's definitely costly, I, I, I would guess. Yeah. Um, so then after the, the pre-processing, um, we're actually building all the recipes on a subgrade aeration pad. It was when you were here, I kind of compared it to a giant air hockey table. Um, and that is, that is to just create a really highly aerobic environment. <clears throat> we're running the aeration negative. So we're actually drawing the air down through the material. Um, Material is on the aeration pad for, what are we at, like 21 days? 30 days now. 30 days now, okay. Um, and when and it's being turned a couple times a week, we have the, those, the turners that you saw that drive right in the material and push it over to the side um, through, a hop, off a, through a hopper and then off a belt to the side. Um, and when we're turning um, pre-PFRP on the aeration pad, um, we're trying to keep the, the material at up to 50% moisture. And a lot of the, the liquid that we're introducing is recycled beer, beer waste and other liquids that we get in from various uh, um, liquid processing accounts, juice manufacturers, soda manufacturers, as well as uh, some so of the- So you actually pick up their liquid waste with like a, um, one of those trucks, one of those- Yes. Uh, yeah. We have a, a vac tanker, so we're, we're able to go to some of these facilities that have uh, waste or byproduct materials that might be too demanding for the, for the local wastewater treatment plant. And we pump out their tanks and bring it to our facility and use it as, as an input, um, primarily to actually um, introduce moisture into our processing compost. But that you add that during the active phase of the composting, does that not, uh, you know, I guess, add potential pathogens and kind of uh, deter the PFRP standards? Or not? Um, so we are only able to apply that liquid pre-PFRP. 
Um, so the last or the, the final uh, phase while it's on the aeration pad is where we're tracking PFRP um, pre that. So for the first 25 days, essentially we're able to apply that liquid and, and it's pre PFRP after material is um, or post PFRP when returning um, in the cure phase, we're only able to apply fresh water at that point. Okay. And just so everyone's clear, what does PFRP stand for? It's the process for the further reduction of pathogens. So it's basically the, the weed seed and uh, soil pathogen uh, kill off phase. Um, right. Thermophilic composting. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So um, after the active phase, say post PFRP, do you guys, does it then go on to curing? Uh, correct. Yep. Um, so we, uh, it's pulled off the aeration pad and it um, goes into a, a cure phase for another up to 60 days before um, it reaches the final screener. Um, and in the curing, it's still, it's still composting. It's kind of just settling down after, after the, the PFRP uh, heavily thermophilic phase. Um, and we're still turning it um, a couple times a week out there, applying fresh water. Um, like I said, we're in a pretty harsh environment. So keeping it, um, up to 40 to 50% moisture is, is critical out here, um, in an area where we can see up to 7% moisture loss on a windy day in the summer. Um, so we, we're, we're trying to get a, a high quality product to the screener, which is on the far, far side of our site, at which time, at once it meets the screener. It's screened, and then we can we stockpile that uh, screen material and load out the oldest material first. Awesome. And uh, what, just curious, what uh, size of gauges do you use on your screener? So it's a relatively finer uh, compost. Um, we're screening at a three h inch minus, um, which makes a really high quality high quality product. Um, over the last couple of years, we did uh, implement a, a new screener, um, which has kind of introduced a slightly coarser fraction. We used to have a compost and then an orchard blend compost that had more of the coarse woody fraction in it. And now we're getting both of those, um, like the whole, the whole array in our, our uh, finished compost, um, which works really well as far as like offering a, a diverse product. Great. Um, I think that, you know, your facility is definitely operating at like uh, amazing capacity and you guys are doing uh, really great things. You know, is there anything you would recommend to aspiring community composters who may just be doing ASP on the ground like I'm doing? Um, you know, what do you, what part of the process would you recommend a, a beginner to focus on, um, you know, if they had to choose one and they had limited resources, like limited capital? I, to me, I think the most important is just focusing on the fundamentals of composting. You know, we've been to facilities where they have more technology than anywhere and are still making terrible compost. And we've been to places that have no technology and make great compost. So I think, you know, 
paying attention to CN ratio, bulk density, porosity, moisture, and, and just those conditions that can make a good compost is 10 times more important than, you know, aeration or equipment or any of those other things. Uh, my concluding question is, you know, what would you recommend to other aspiring composters who are processing and uh, what should they think of with their, their end product, how to market that towards their customers? Mm-hmm. I think what we've learned or what I've learned working with Dirt Hugger is just really maintaining close contact uh, with our customers, um, both on the, the feedstock tipping side, but um, at least in my case, what I do primarily with Dirt Hugger um, is like working with uh, farms, like finding out what, what are their needs. Um, like for example, with like our orchard customers, we can get them the compost or we were getting them the compost, but they didn't have the tool to actually apply it. Um, they needed a specific like side discharge manure spreader to get it into um, the orchard uh, orchard tree rows. Um, so we got, a, we got a side discharge spreader and that, that allowed for our orchard customers to actually apply compost and use compost oh. um, year after year in their soil management plans. The vineyards saw that. They, but they couldn't use the, the orchard spreader because it was too wide. So we had to get a, a, a more narrow spreader that the geometry fit better in the, the grape row spacing. Um, getting compost to specific users um, requires uh, being open with how we get it to them in terms of getting them the right truck. Um, delivering to a landscape yard is one thing, but delivering to a farm out in the middle of nowhere is another. And the, the same truck is the same truck that you use for landscape yard is not the one you use often for, for a farm in which you have to go down some goat trail. Oh, uh, so you couldn't just run a, a dump truck back there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of specifics to some of these sites, especially agricultural sites in, in uh, areas with uh, extreme topography. Mm-hmm. like grape growing country um also just like really learning about our our retail customers our backyard gardeners and sharing their experiences with our retailers the, the landscape yards that we provide compost to um just as a customer education for them because when we're one removed from the end user like when we sell to a landscape yard, but we're not in close contact with the actual end user, there can be a breakdown. Um, so it's maintaining that conversation to make sure that products are use, being used appropriately, that if they receive complaints um, from their customers about anything, that we support them, that we find out, all right, well, what happened? We've got their back in it. Um, it's just it's like actually, the front end is maintaining conversation with your haulers if you're if they're picking up food waste to make sure that the the generator knows about how the program operates need what they need to be wary of on the contamination. Correct. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's super important because um, it. it one thing going wrong on the on the front end will affect the product on 
on the back end of it. And, and if it doesn't fit into the process, it's, it's going to create all sorts of ruckus. Um, so yeah, I, I think like when we, when, when we do outreach to prospective uh, customers um, using that are going to use compost, um, we try to do uh, some education ahead of time just to make sure that they're, they're using it correctly. We don't want them to go out and apply compost and then their soil at a rate that might not serve their intention and then somehow get blamed, but get blamed for it or, or have it have to go and haul machinery there and dig it out. Um, mm. So I think that's the biggest thing, just like we had talked about earlier in the conversation is a lot of facilities get a lot more of their revenue depends on the front end and then the, the compost that's created is kind of an afterthought. Um, we really try to balance it 50% on both sides. Um, and to do that, it's work and it's a lot of like close contact with customers, but in the end, it's really paid off in terms of generating a market for our product and pushing product quality, as well as providing services to, um, to get compost applied. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's putting value behind that finished compost. But thank you guys so much for this conversation. I think it was really valuable for those composters out there, more focused on the processing side rather than most of my episodes are about collection. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Charlie. Have a good rest of the day. Bye-bye. Please rate and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. If you feel like this is good content and you're learning a lot about compost, 